1: Hi Miriam, this is Amanda St. Hilaire with Fox 6. How are you?
0: Hi, I'm all right, how are you?
1: I'm doing well, is this still a good time? This is. Great. First, can you say your first and last name and your title for the purpose of this story?
0: Sure, I'm Miriam Seifter, I'm a law professor at the University of Wisconsin Law School.
1: And where are you right now?
0: Right now I am in Wellington, New Zealand.
1: What's going on in Wellington, New Zealand?
0: Oh, um, a lot of careful news watching, um, but also academic research, which is why I'm here. So I study administrative law and constitutional law, and much of my recent work has been on the constitutional law of state governments um, and on the powers of um, state officials. One thing to keep in mind, I think, particularly during a crisis like this, is that state actors and governors in particular can often just act more swiftly and more nimbly than the federal government
1: can. There's a section um, under the statute about emergency powers in Wisconsin where it says he can issue such orders as he or she deems necessary for the security of persons and property. That's... Sounds pretty broad. Theoretically, couldn't anything fall under that wording? Uh, No.
2: Twelve days ago, Governor Tony Evers declared a public health emergency, giving him broad powers to try to prevent the spread of COVID-19. His latest uses of those powers have prompted calls and emails to our newsroom asking, can he do that? From the Fox 6 Studios, this is a special edition of Open Record. I'm Brian Polson, and I'm here again with my colleague Amanda St. Hilaire. Good morning, Amanda.
1: Hey, Brian.
2: So we're bringing you new episodes of Open Record every day, Monday through Friday, during this pandemic to make it easier for you to sort through the bombardment of coronavirus news. And we're recording this one on Tuesday morning, March 24th. Governor Tony Evers announced yesterday that he's issuing a stay-at-home order that would force non-essential businesses to close.
1: And we do want to note by the time we release this episode, we will have more details about which businesses are considered non-essential. There's been some confusion around that, so we want to save that conversation for tomorrow so we can really dive into it.
2: That's a very fluid situation and will likely change after we're done recording this podcast. But for now, for today, we're talking about where the governor gets the power to do these things in the first place. Amanda, there's actually a lot of history behind this one.
1: There is, and that's what made this fun. Because it's always good to cite your sources, I do want to let you know that what I'm about to say comes from a Harvard Law Review article by Miriam Seifter. That's the voice you heard at the beginning of this episode. In that article, Miriam goes back a few hundred years to the founding of this country. She says early state constitutions deliberately made governors weak. There were fears about corruption because colonial governors were seen as brutal, abusing their power. And this isn't an exaggeration here. In The Creation of the American Republic, Professor Gordon Wood writes, the Americans' emasculation of their governors lay at the heart of their constitutional reforms of 1776. Emasculation. Governors did not have the ability to veto legislation like they do now. They even had limited power to make executive appointments. So at the beginning of a governor's term, when he announces his cabinet, that's always a big deal. That wasn't really a thing back then. Uh, There's a story that when William Hooper returned from North Carolina's Constitutional Convention and was asked how much power they gave the governor, his answer was just enough to sign the receipt for his salary. But then there were growing concerns that the state legislatures now had too much power. So every decision has consequences. Over the years, states tried to tweak this balance, still keeping governors weak. But it really wasn't until after World War II that this idea of centralized executive power took hold.
2: What really strikes me is just what you're talking about here. When you talk about history, what we are going through now is truly an historic event. And and we're living it right now. You're talking about things like World War II. Why was it in this case that World War II had such an influence?
1: So Miriam writes that people were impressed with the way the federal government responded. So in any crisis, there is an analysis of... How well did we take preventative measures? How well did we respond? Sound familiar? Not that this is World War II, but that was the analysis that was happening after that. People were happy with the way the federal government responded, so they started modeling state governments after that setup.
0: And In particular, governors who at the founding were sort of um, just uh, powerless actors who are sort of figureheads um, have become um, a, a real point people for operationalizing state emergency responses.
1: And that brings us to Wisconsin today. State law allows the governor to declare a public health emergency, and that public health emergency is exactly what Governor Tony Evers declared almost two weeks ago. With that comes a lot of broad powers to respond
0: states are the front lines of public public health defense. The federal government has a crucial role to play, but it's the states that really do the actions that um, protect public health and safety in ways that affect people's day-to-day lives.
2: So this is the part of the podcast where we really get into discussion about all of this. And 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 before I get to some of the questions we've listed out here, the one that strikes me as we're talking about this now is is a historical question because we're talking about the history of the governor's powers in Wisconsin, and we know many of those powers are being exercised right now. Is this the first time in Wisconsin's history that a governor has exercised these emergency powers to this degree?
1: Uh, To this degree, perhaps. So the last time that we had a public health emergency in Wisconsin was 2009, uh, and that was with H1N1. But it was not nearly to the degree that this is. And over the last 50 or so years, there have been individual emergencies for municipalities for things like winter weather and kind of natural disaster types of events. Again, we hear there's a declaration of emergency. We don't really think much of it. And that's because historically in Wisconsin, we haven't seen that broad use of powers, not in in this exact way that I've seen documented.
2: I, I think we mostly think of that, as you said, as in weather emergencies. And it's usually because it, it's a declaration that speeds up Uh, funds from the federal government, it brings FEMA and things like that. I, I, I don't know that I recall, certainly in our lifetimes, but I'm just wondering historically, has there been a case where their governor has been restricting where people can go and what they can do?
1: I haven't seen one that happened uh, outside of wartime. I mean, certainly there were restrictions on things, but most of those were coming from the federal government when we're talking about World War II and, uh, you know, as as a public and as a community, how we were uh, during wartime making sacrifices when we're talking about rations, when we're talking about the kinds of products that we make. Um, but on a state level, state-by-state um having such a different responses i i do think we're in a historic moment
2: well and this is not without its own controversy certainly there are many people who as this has uh, has gone on have questioned you know is it as serious as it's being made out to be can the governor really do this that seems to be the fundamental question a lot of people have is can the governor really do this so let's get to that key question what are the powers the governor has under a public health emergency
1: the powers are broad. So there is one line that I want to read to you in the state statute and, and a lot of these things that we're seeing come down to it. It says the governor can issue such orders as he or she deems necessary for the security of persons and property.
2: That okay, sounds what pretty that generic.
1: <laughs> it sounds very generic and it is a broad power. Uh, Basically, the governor can't violate the federal constitution, the state constitution. But outside of that, that sentence really creates a situation where you can have broad powers. So a few days ago when we were talking about the economic impact of COVID-19, the governor needs the legislature to do certain things because The way our state constitution is set up he can't just snap his fingers and do anything he wants he can't say okay in wisconsin we're going to give everyone a two thousand dollar check from our state funds the governor does not have the constitutional authority to do that however what we have seen over the last almost two weeks now Um, the constitutional scholars I've talked to say that seems to fall exactly within the realm of what he's allowed to do, ordering schools to close, banning mass gatherings of certain sizes, and then shrinking those sizes, uh, saying bars and restaurants need to close for in-house services, restricting childcare sizes, uh, updating it so that hair salons, nail salons, barber shops, tattoo parlors, tanning facilities are closed and then just yesterday announcing that he will soon order non-essential businesses to close in this stay at home order. These are all things that the constitutional scholars I'm speaking to say appear to fall within the realm of what he can do. In addition to that, the governor does have the ability to seize property. The statute specifically lays out that power. He can also avoid certain rulemaking processes or bidding processes, uh, things that tend to move very slowly. You need them to move faster in a public health emergency. And the idea is, okay, he can take those steps to speed it up. So those are a, a few things that he specifically can do because of the statute. In other states, we've seen people take it even further. So in New York, Governor Cuomo uh, suspended the requirement for a quorum at meetings. So you don't need to have a certain number of people present at a meeting in order to make a decision. Sounds like a small thing, but the idea is it can speed up the process. There are transparency advocates who are worried about that idea because it could allow for the idea of Uh, decisions being made in secret. So there are other significantly controversial moves that governors have made. And in some states, they've even presented legal challenges. That's what's happening in Pennsylvania. Governor Tom Wolf there uh, issued uh, essentially a stay-at-home order. Different states are calling it different things. And there are uh, a few legal challenges to that constitutional scholars don't expect those to necessarily stand up in the short term but if these are attempted to stretch out for the long term that's where the legal argument could get interesting in wisconsin the governor's powers these powers don't go on forever they're limited to 60 days and at the end of the 60 days the legislature can grant the governor an extension But we're in a situation where we have a Republican legislature, a Democratic governor. Republican leaders have made it clear they're not super happy about this idea of a stay-at-home order. So the idea of extending those powers, right now it's kind of hard to fathom.
2: So you obviously just talked about a lot of powers the governor has exercised here. And there's broad authority in what he can do. But do we really know what the limits are to those powers? Are there limits or does he have sort of unlimited authority to say, "Well, today's another order." How just how restrictive can can this get? How far can the governor go?
1: As far as I can see, there's no restriction on the amounts of orders that he can issue, but you know, I asked Miriam the same question when we were talking, and, you know, she gave what she called kind of an outlandish example.
0: The governor couldn't just say um, there can't be any media coverage at all of the outbreak, right? That might sound like it's within the letter of what you read, but that would that would um, almost certainly be unconstitutional.
1: There are other questions that are a little more in the gray area. So I know I've seen some people uh, with these restrictions on gatherings raise issues of the right to peaceably assemble. That is a constitutional right. However, a like First every... Amendment Consti- right. It's a First Amendment right. But like Every constitutional right, it is not unlimited. So, you know, we have freedom of the press, but there are rules that keep you and I, Brian, from going out and defaming someone. In the same way, you have the right to peaceably assemble, but there are restrictions to that. My neighborhood has a block party every year, and we shut down the street. We need to get a permit to do that. We can't just decide, hey, we're going to shut down the street because we want to peaceably assemble. We have to go through the correct channels. But because this there this are isn't the case any- issues.
2: This isn't the case anymore. Of a governor saying you need a permit to assemble. This is now a governor saying you can't assemble. So this is going a lot farther than we've seen before, and that does raise that question of how far can it go? Uh, it, because I think obviously, short of an emergency declaration. Uh, it would never pass constitutional muster for a governor to say you can't have 10 people in a room. So there there certainly are places where these emergency orders would seem to conflict with what we expect from constitutional rights. And I think that's what maybe worries some people, particularly you start talking about things like seizing property. That gets people – people are very sensitive to that, and and you wonder how far can this go. And I wonder, because this has been used so infrequently in our history – most – when you think of laws that the legislature passes, they get tested. That's what appeals are about. That's what court rulings are for to determine legislative intent, to determine what laws mean. This is one that hasn't really been tested. It's being tested right now and is yeah. it really – is precedent going to be set as, in terms of where the limits are of what governors can do in states of emergency?
1: So I I should note here that I haven't found yet a constitutional scholar who will say, pointing to specifically the right to peaceably assemble, that that makes Governor Evers' declaration void, that that is unconstitutional. All the ones I've talked to have said that they don't think that that argument would really hold a whole lot of legal muster because there are already a lot of limits to the right to peaceably assemble, especially since uh, when we're talking about limits for group sizes. For example, you can't you can't have an unlimited number of people assembling within one building, for example. There are building capacity limits. So there are other parts of that law that haven't really been fleshed out. Um, but I haven't found any constitutional scholar who said, I think there is a significantly strong legal challenge here specifically to Governor Evers' declaration. So I do want to make that clear. If you are a constitutional scholar and you're listening to this and you think that, give me a call because I want to pick your brain. Um, But I haven't found that yet. That's not to say there won't be legal challenges. Like I said, in other states, there have been. The question is how far will those legal challenges go? Because we we are in uncharted territory here, and that's what makes it tricky to navigate.
2: Well, and and Governor Evers is who we're talking about. But as you said, this is happening in states all across the country. And how does what's happening here, how does what Governor Evers is doing here compare to what other governors are doing around the United States?
1: So from what I've seen, Evers is not the most aggressive in using his his emergency powers, but he's not the least aggressive either. So I think The governor that we've been hearing a lot about lately is Governor Mike DeWine in Ohio. He used his emergency powers to suspend an election. That's a pretty big deal, and that was seen as a controversial move. Uh, It's interesting because on Friday, uh, Evers had said, someone uh, on one of the press calls that he held asked if we were going to have a shelter-in-place order, and at that point he said, I don't think that will be necessary at this point. Well, during that call and then over the weekend, we saw more states come down with shelter in place orders, stay at home orders, whatever you want to call them. And then on Monday, we have this announcement from Governor Evers that we're going to do that here. So I haven't seen any of these powers where he's been the first governor in the country to pull the trigger on that. Um, but there are certainly others in the country who have not gone quite as far as he has either.
2: There are some uh, other governors who've done some things that certainly that uh, Governor Evers has not. Uh, state of Oregon, for instance, uh, the governor has talked about suspending evictions in the state. Now, some legislatures have passed Legislation to suspend evictions, but I—that's the only—and you—you have studied this more closely than I have, Amanda. So correct me if I'm wrong, but that may be the only governor who's talked about uh, issuing an order to suspend them. Is that something that Governor Evers has anyone talked about whether he's considered that here in Wisconsin? Obviously, there are people who are hurting without jobs, who's—who've lost their jobs because businesses have closed and are going to have trouble paying the bills. But you have here in Wisconsin. a a divided party between the legislature and and the the governor's mansion. Um, So it may be more difficult to get things passed in that way. And of course, the legislature is not even in session. So is there any possibility Governor Evers may look at something like that here in Wisconsin?
1: Yeah, I feel like every time there's a press call, which at this point feels like daily, one reporter asks about a specific power that a different governor has used and has asked Evers whether he'll use it. And usually we don't get a direct response. So it's hard to gauge exactly where he is on each of the points that other governors uh, have covered. I know there's been a lot of talk lately about elections um, because, like I said, there, there have been other states where elections have been pushed back, suspended, and uh there at this point, we don't have an indication that that's going to happen here. There's been a strong encouragement of absentee ballot voting. Um, but from day to day, it's hard to really gauge where he's at. Like I said, on Friday, as recently as Friday, he said he didn't think we were going to have a shelter in place order Monday morning. We're told that that order is going to come down.
2: Now, obviously, whether or not the election will be or should be suspended or delayed is is a matter of controversy. There are people on both sides of that issue. But whether or not the governor has the power to do so, and he's indicated he doesn't want to do that and he doesn't plan to. But at least in terms of your research, does Governor Evers, should he want to or choose to, have the power to delay the election?
1: So the issue is, theoretically, Evers could try to delay the election under his emergency powers. But that, because we're in a much more gray area, is much more likely to face a court challenge. So Evers would rather go the route of doing something that he and the legislature can agree on, um, because then you're less likely to see that challenge and go through that battle and face that controversy. But at this point, uh, I don't know exactly how likely that's going to be.
2: Is this the last of the big orders, this, you know, stay at home order that we're going to see? Or do you suspect, and and I, this is speculation, now we're playing armchair quarterback, but are there more major uh, restrictions or orders or announcements to come? I mean, We don't know how long this thing's going to go on or what else is going to happen, do we? We
1: have no idea. I, I don't think that... This going on is going to be a matter of weeks. I think we're going to talk about a matter of months. And that's where the 60-day limit on Governor Evers' powers, his emergency powers, is really going to get interesting. Because I'm wondering how willing the legislature will be to give him that extension. So I, I can't. Predict what he's going to do. I haven't successfully been able to predict what he's going to do. Um, And quite honestly, I don't even know how much the administration knows what they're going to do because things are changing every single day. Part of what they do, it sounds like, is based on how the public responds, like any administration. And we're just going to have to see where that goes.
2: One more thing here that we haven't discussed that is the issue of enforcement. And when Governor Evers first announced the closing of bars and restaurants. You were with me when we visited a a bar in Brookfield that decided to stay open um, past the 5 p.m. ordered closing time. And the question immediately then was, is there any enforcement power um, that the governor has? Who enforces it? How does that happen? As more of these orders come into play, that question keeps coming up. What, if any, kind of enforcement is there? I have people asking me, Brian, if I I go out for a walk with my dog, am I going to get arrested? There's certainly a fear about that. But what happens with orders like this in terms of enforcement?
1: So the statute specifically gives the governor an enforcement mechanism. And you can enforce these measures through charges, fines, even imprisonment. That's the theory. The reality is, and Governor Evers said this yesterday on the press call, that enforcement would be through local law enforcement, your police, your sheriff's office. That is really a subjective area, and they can target how they do that enforcement, and there's a lot of discretion there. So this isn't something where realistically Governor Evers is going to be calling up every single police department saying, How did you enforce my order today? They're not going to have quotas for how many tickets they need to write. Um, and some departments may say, We're not gonna write tickets here. So there's a, a large gray area in terms of how this is enforced. I think the idea is wow, um, people are going to see this is really serious and they're going to take it seriously, and that's a nice thought. But like you said, Brian, as you and I saw just a week ago – there were people who were still congregating and who were saying, you know what, the governor's not going to tell me where to go and how many people I should be around. So I think that's something that we as reporters are going to need to be tracking is that enforcement, because we're going to see it very greatly from police department to police department.
2: Although I think one thing the governor's counting on, and I think is probably true in most cases, is that most people want to do the right thing. The vast majority of people want to see this thing end and end as quickly as possible. I'm seeing so many comments on social media from people saying, "Just do your part, so we can get through this." He's relying on the need uh, on, on people following this willingly because they want to get through it, and and hoping that there's a minimum need for enforcement. Of course, we always know there are going to be people who violate the letter and spirit of, of any law or order. But the reality is, this is an unusual time. And they're hoping as many people as possible will follow these things willingly because we all have one hope in mind, and that is that we can get through this pandemic with a minimum of illness, a minimum of death, and get back to our regular lives. Well, thanks again, Amanda. Another great podcast episode, and uh, we'll look forward to doing it again.
1: Thank you, Brian.
2: So we're going to continue bringing you more frequent episodes of Open Record as we cover the COVID-19 pandemic. If there's a topic you want us to discuss, an issue you think we should investigate, please send us an email at theinvestigators at fox That's T-H-E investigators, all one word. At FoxSixNow.com. Thank you to the people who made this podcast possible producer Pete, our amazing editor Dave Machuda, who has to edit out all of my stumbles and and, uh, restarts, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. And please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Polson. We'll be back again tomorrow.